USA. Streaming live from our website at radiomovia.us. On your own telephone, nationwide at 1-712-832-8065. And on the radio in Louisiana at 580 AM KGMJ Alexandria. 1360 KNIR New Iberia and on FM at 89.7 KBIO Nacogdoche and 91.1 KOJO at Charles. In Texas on 1250 AM KBEI Port Arthur. In Ohio on 88.7 FM WHJM Anna. 1600 AM WULM Springfield with translator W277AO. 103.3 FM Eden Dayton. In Pennsylvania, on 88.1 FM, WHHN, Hollandsburg, Altoona. In Mississippi, also on 88.1 FM, WOLM, Diabreville, Biloxi. And in Wisconsin, on 91.3 FM, WRMW, Peshtigo. You can also listen to us nationwide from the World Family Smartphone app, available from our website. Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. With Roy Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and thank you for joining me once again on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism. Okay, I hope I'm back. Okay, I, I'm sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> still a few bugs in the system. I don't know when I was lost, so forgive me if I if I um, repeat myself, but I was going to spend today's show talking about evolution, uh, just taking advantage of the fact that my background is in science. I have a Bachelor of Science from MIT, and now I am, I hope, a very enthusiastic Catholic, and I just wanted to share my perspective on what Catholics should believe and what they are free to the range in which they're free to believe anything they want and what reasonable people should believe and the range in which they're free to believe anything that they want uh, and of course this is a call live call-in show uh, and this show definitely i'm interruptible at any moment the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And if you have any question or problem with the content of the show as I'm talking, just please give a call, and I'll try to keep an eye on the call board and uh, respond to whatever questions or problems there might be. So here goes. First of all, we have a tremendous advantage as Catholics, which is we have dogma. In other words, the church has very carefully outlined what we actually have to believe under pain of sin. Uh, and that's really just dogma. That is what we are to give the assent of faith. We are to accept as true because God has revealed it. God has revealed it through sacred scripture, um, uh, uh, confirmed by the interpretation of the magisterium of the church. So it's, it's revealed by God who cannot lie or cannot deceive, and therefore we are to believe it. And in fact, there is very little in Catholic dogma with relationship to evolution, which we have to believe. Let me uh, just read those two statements. First, from the First Vatican Council, which was in the 1860s, we as Catholics have no choice. We must agree that, quote, 
the world and all things which are contained in it, both spiritual and material, as regards their whole substance, have been produced by God from nothing. So everything that exists outside of God himself has been created by God ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that God could not use intermediate mechanisms, so to speak, to create things. Uh, it doesn't mean that he could not have used a gradual stepwise development, for instance, of living organisms to get to where we are today. Uh, you know, if I have a table in my living room, God did not directly create that table out of nothing. He used various, took advantage of various other mechanisms and processes, whoever you know, the, the tree that grew out of the earth and the person who cut down the tree and fashioned the table and so forth. So it doesn't mean that everything is directly created. How can I put this? It doesn't mean that everything comes direct and finished from the hand of God, but it does mean that nothing could possibly exist if God didn't bring it into creation. So in fact, this statement does not mean you cannot believe in normal evolution. Let me jump ahead a little bit because I don't want to. I don't want to be, you know, saying anything under false pretenses. I do not believe in Darwinian evolution at all. And the purpose of the show, from my perspective, is to just basically um, remove the illusion that a reasonable, intelligent, informed person is not free to reject, basically, evolution. In other words, I am going to assert in the course of the show that if you already believe in God, it is far more reasonable to reject the theory of evolution than to accept it. The only excuse, so to speak, for accepting the theory of evolution is that if you do not want to admit the existence of God, there's basically no alternative to the theory of evolution. Not that the theory of evolution actually is a satisfactory alternative, but simply, and, and you'll hear this said, I, I have it on tape somewhere, that uh, an evolutionary biologist who, when he is painted into a corner and presented with all of the problems with the theory of evolution, he basically says, well, we really don't know how those things work right now, and we don't have an answer to those questions, but evolution must be true because there's no alternative except creation. For us, there is an alternative to evolution because we already accept creation. So that's really where I'm going to go in this show. Now, back to what the church uh, teaches definitively, dogmatically, with respect to evolution. And this is a little bit more directly relevant to the theory of evolution, although it's certainly not a, not a um, definitive resolution one way or the other. And this is from the document Humani Generis from Pope Pius XII. Uh, that would make it about the 1940s, 1950s. And I'll read the short passage from there. It basically uh, supports the dogma or proclaims the dogma of primogenesis, which is a fancy word meaning that all of humanity came from an original first couple who we refer to as Adam and Eve that all of mankind throughout history, every human soul, every human soul has been incarnated, so to speak, into a body that descended from Adam and Eve. And every human soul, by the way, 
is created. Well, I'll just read the passage because it says it all from Humani Generous, Generous. The Catholic faith obliges us to hold that souls are immediately created by God. Okay, the immortal human soul. Remember, that's the point of everything, including our bodies. We have immortal human souls. You know, our body is going to die and rot in the ground and get eaten by worms. But our soul is going to be rejoicing in bliss in the presence of God for all eternity, or it will be regretting the choices we made during our lifetime in a much less pleasant place for all eternity. But those are really the only two possibilities. We all, by definition, have an immortal human soul. If you're listening to the broadcast, you're never going to die. You're going to live forever. We are immortal human souls, and we have to believe as Catholics that every single immortal human soul um, are, is immediately created by God. So we come straight from the hand of God. Our immortal souls, I should say, come straight from the hand of God. Our bodies might have come from another process. Let me continue with Humani Generis. The faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parents of all. Such an opinion cannot be reconciled with that which the teaching authority of the church proposes with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual Adam in which through generation is passed onto all and is in everyone. Now, this is actually, I think, rather obvious if you stop to think about it. The entire dogma of original sin, our entire fallen human nature and state of sin in which we are born and for which we need baptism to remove the stain of original sin, that whole dogma of original sin flows from the fact that our first parents, Adam and Eve, in fact, sinned. And somehow, mystically, mysteriously, that sin has flowed through via human generation, via human reproduction, ever since. And since every human being, uh, with the beautiful and notable exception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, and of course Jesus himself, since then has original sin. Now, the entire dogma of original sin is dependent on primogenesis, that all of mankind descended from a single human couple whom we refer to as Adam and Eve. This you have to hold. If you want to hold it, if you want to believe in evolution, so to speak, you are free to, but you have to accept the fact that at some point in time, animals, let's say, believe me, the, the point of the show is, is actually to dismiss the concept of evolution. I don't buy it. But you're free to believe in evolution. But if you believe in evolution, you have to accept the fact that at some point in time, what was going on was that animals evolved. You can think of them as apes or whatever. They evolved to the point where they were like human beings, but they did not have human souls. And then God took one couple of these, one man and one woman, and infused them with human soul coming directly from the hand of God. And then they were the first genuine human beings. And then they com fell, they committed sin, and 
that sin has been transmitted to all of mankind that has all generated from that one couple. So if evolution were true, we have no idea what happened to the other animals that were prepared to be human, so to speak, at that point in time. But we know that they must have died out because there is no human being today who hasn't descended from Adam and Eve. Okay, I hope that's clear. Um, I can't I can't believe I haven't gotten any calls yet. But anyway, please just be free, free to call or free just to listen or free to turn off the radio or anything you like. But if you want to call, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Okay, so any, any form of evolution, any belief in evolution which doesn't violate the two principles, actually three principles, which I just named, which is that nothing exists that wasn't produced by God, and that every human soul comes directly from God, and that every human being has descended from one original couple. Those are kind of the three premises that you must accept. If you can work that into a theory of evolution, you are morally free to accept a theory of evolution. Why shouldn't you accept a theory of evolution? That's what I'm going to talk about now. The first reason you shouldn't accept the theory of evolution, I shouldn't say shouldn't, okay, but the reason why I think it's illogical to. Oh, let me just say, you may have heard the phrase theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is an umbrella term to refer to any, any form of evolutionary theory that still incorporates God, that still holds on to a belief in God. So the most common form of theistic evolution that one finds in the Catholic Church is that um, all life on earth evolved from some very simple original life form in gradual steps, as proposed by Darwin, uh, through mutations from generation to generation. However, those mutations were not in entirely random, but they were directed by divine providence to result in what we have today, including human beings. I, th I would say that's the most common form of theistic evolution that one finds in the Catholic world today. So that's what theistic evolution means. It's, it's an attempt to reconcile what people mistakenly think has been established as scientific fact from through evolution with what has to be held as, as true, as, uh, as, as revealed truth, because we have it through the Catholic Church. Um, however, I'm going to spend the rest of the show I, I, trying to convey the idea that there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to bother with believing in theistic evolution. And here's the first reason there's no reason to believe in theistic evolution, which is the whole point of the theory of evolution was to be able to explain how we have what we see around us in the world, in particular life in all of its you know beautiful forms, incredibly sophisticated and, and, and beautiful and interwoven forms of life, how we have that, if there is no God. It, uh, basically, evolution is an attempt to explain life as it exists today uh, without requiring God as part of that explanation. If you're willing to accept God as part of that explanation, you actually don't need the rest. The only reason you would need the rest, that is, the entire, the entire pseudoscience of evolution, is if, in fact, there was evidence for it 
And you want to be honest and you want to accept the evidence for it. And therefore, in good conscience, you have to reconcile the evidence with your Catholic belief. Now, I am going to claim in the course of the show that there actually is no evidence whatsoever, for, number one, for uh, the story of evolution, and number two, that the story of evolution, even if it was all true, has the world's, the co- world's biggest elephant in the middle of the room that no one pays attention to, which is how we got life from non-life. In other words, all of evolution has to do with life replicating itself, that is, reproducing, mutations occurring from generation to generation in gradual steps, which produce more and more complex forms of life. It has no explanation whatsoever about how you got life from non-life in the first place. So, in fact, even the theory of evolution, in all of its glory, doesn't even successfully claim to have an explanation for the origin of life. And I will get to that later in the show. I'd better stick to the course of my notes or else I'm going to get too lost, okay? So um, that is one thing, is that the huge elephant in the room is called abiogenesis or the uh, genesis of life from non-life. That's one huge hole. Um, Another huge hole is a total absence of evidence, absent circular reasoning, that all of the evidence for evolution falls into one of two categories. One is variation within a species, um, and number, well, actually there are three things that are pointed to as evidence for evolution. One is that the fact that mutations occur. Yes, mutations do occur. Another is that There are variations within a species, and the variation, the dominant variations within a species are subject to change and can change over time. There's no no dispute about that. And the um, third type of evidence before evolution, uh, behind evolution, ends up being essentially circular reasoning. So uh, let me just go through those now. I have no idea if I've lost you or not. I mean, in other words, I don't know if this is of any interest to you. I hope it is. Okay, first of all, basic premise of Darwinian evolution, I'm just going to, you know, kind of repeat this, is that um, complex life has developed from very simple life, usually considered a single-cell organism. That somehow this single-cell organism, you can think of an amoeba, you can think of a bacteria, um, the just some the simplest form of life somehow bingle appeared three billion years ago and that's it that was the creation of life from non-life or the appearance of life from non-life and since then that amoeba or that bacterium or that single-celled organism developed into all of the life on earth today in all of its forms animal vegetable human mammal, reptilian, birds, and so forth, all descended from that original first living cell that even evolution has no claim to have an explanation for. So, uh, and how did that happen? That happened because with every generation from parent to child, there is a risk, you know, this duplication through DNA, RNA in some cases, 
there's a risk of a mutation and maybe some of these mutations were advantages and therefore the that mutation was more successful in outcompeting its competition so to speak and kind of took over and then another mutation came along did the same thing stacked on top of the first mutation so to speak and eventually with enough of these mutations you got from that single-celled organism to you and me you know and your pet dog and the birds in the air and so forth they obviously went down different forks in the road of mutations but they all were a sequence of incremental small mutations past you know in the course of replication the course of reproduction okay and natural selection then favored the advantageous mutations and therefore those advantageous mutations t took over and then were there waiting for the next advantageous mutation for the same thing to happen over again okay now uh first of all the that first original cell right which you need for any of this to happen i will read i will read a actually the wikipedia description of it's called a biogenesis the life from non-life because this is the best this is the best <laughs> the evolution theory has to offer abiogenesis or the origin of life is the natural process by which life has arisen from non-living matter such as simple organic compounds in other words like proteins while the details of this process are still unknown the prevailing scientific hypothesis is that the transition from non-living to living entities was an evolutionary process of increasing complexity. Although the occurrence of abiogenesis is uncontroversial among scientists, its possible mechanisms are poorly understood. Now, this is the most ludicrous understatement in the world. Excuse me. First of all, note it says, the origin of life is the natural process by which life has arisen from non-living matter. So it's an, it has to be a natural process. In other words, God can't be involved. That is the premise. That's not the conclusion. That's not the observation. That is the assumption. That is the unchallengeable assumption that it's a natural process because there can't be a God. There isn't a God. So we need a natural process. Now, the details of this process are still unknown. That's an understatement nothing about this process there isn't the wildest harebrained you know splinter of a theory about what this process was the entire process is completely unexplained it's even unguessed at okay that's is described in this as the details of the process are still unknown um, the prevailing scientific hypothesis is that the transition from non-living to living entities was quote an evolutionary process of increasing complexity. Now that is flat dishonest, if you, if I may say so, because by definition, evolution requires reproduction, right? Reproduction and mutation. You can't have reproduction until you have life. So it wasn't an evolutionary process. Um, although the occurrence of abiogenesis is uncontroversial among scientists, because of course we've assumed that it has to be a natural process because there is no God, and therefore we all agree <laughs> that it exists, okay? Do you see how circular this is? Anyway, continuing. Its possible mechanisms are poorly understood. 
again, understatement. We have no, we have no possible mechanisms that we can even fantasize about. Okay, we haven't presented any possible mechanisms, so there are no possible mechanisms even suggested. So how can they be poorly understood? There's no, there's not even any guess at any, much less any any understanding of any. Okay, so that is the elephant in the room. Okay, now. I will continue because this is an embarrassment. This should be an, an embarrassment to the scientific community. But, well, I'll, I'll read it and then I'll tell you more about it. The alternative span, panspermia hypothesis, okay? So this is their other hypothesis as to how life arose on Earth in the absence of God. The alternative panspermia hypothesis speculates that microscopic life arose outside of Earth by unknown mechanisms and spread to the early Earth on space dust and meteor meteoroids. It is known that complex organic molecules occur in the solar system and in interstellar space, and these molecules may have provided starting material for the development of life on Earth. Okay, we don't know where the original single-celled organism came from. Maybe it came from outer space. They actually are saying that. That's what this panspermia hypothesis is. This panspermia hypothesis was voiced by no less than Stephen Hawkins, with Hawking, excuse me, Hawking, who was like the you know top theoretical physicist. I think he passed away recently of this you know of the late twentieth century. Life, since we have no explanation for how life arose on Earth, maybe it came here from outer space. Notice. One of the big problems with that theory, beyond the point that there's no basis for it whatsoever, is it still doesn't explain the origin of life, right? It just moves it from how did life arise from non-life on Earth to how did life arise from non-life in some other galaxy somewhere. And they make it sound scientific by saying it is known that complex organic molecules occur in the solar system and in interstellar space, okay? So because we have organic molecules, proteins, whatever, um, you know, carbon, hydrogen compounds in space, that's an explanation of how life arose from non-life. I'm beating a dead horse, I think. They're trying to beat a dead horse so hard that it comes to life. Worse than that, a horse that was never alive comes to life. Anyway, so... Um, the um, oh, let me read. Let me read a um, another quote. As long as I'm I'm kind of uh, talking about this a, a, a problems with abiogenesis, because this is this is really the whole the whole world of um, you have to believe in evolution has been scientifically established is so based on fraud that. Really, humor should be the response. So here is an um, article from Scientific American, July 1st, 2002. And we'll read a direct quote. Creationists sometimes try to invalidate all of evolution by pointing to science's current inability to explain the origin of life. But even if life on Earth turned out to have a non-evolutionary origin, for instance, if aliens introduced the first cells billions of years ago, evolution since then would be robustly confirmed 
by countless microevolutionary and macroevolutionary studies. Okay, I'm sorry, this is offensive. Creationists sometimes try to invalidate all of evolution. No, this doesn't have to do with a pre-existing being a creationist. This has to do with you, the evolutionary biologists, are proposing a scientific theory, worse than that, a scientific theory that you claim has been proven, and we are pointing out that even if it were true, it would not explain the origin of life on Earth. So, that yes, that does mean, excuse me, yes, the fact remains that evolution might still be true in explaining how that single organism came to the life that we know. We're not saying that that aspect of evolution can't be true. There are other reasons it can't be true, but we're not pointing to the failure to explain the origin of life as proving that Darwinian evolution can't occur. We are saying your inability to explain the origin of life proves that the theory of evolution does not explain life in the absence of God. It's no substitute for belief in God. You have to come up with at least a theory to explain where that first life came from if you're going to claim that because we now have the theory of evolution, we no longer have a need for God, a belief in God, to be able to explain life. I, I hope you follow that. So we're not saying that Darwinian evolution can't have happened. We're just saying that even if it did happen, it's not a satisfactory explanation of life on Earth. Unless you want to say life on Earth came from another planet, in which case it's not a satisfactory explanation of where life began originally. Anyway, so um, so anyway, so basically, uh, evolutionists, whatever you want to call that, the science of evolution throws up its hands in despair at any proposal for where life came from from non-life and basically says, okay, we're not going to bother about that. Let's just get on with how we got from that original single-celled organism to what we have today. Now, how did this problem come about? I am already at the halfway point in the program, I see. I am going to play a very short um, clip of music. Um, it's not your typical Ra um, Radio Maria music, because since I'm, this show is about creation, essentially, I thought it would be fun to play a clip of, um, it's actually from Haydn's um, oratory, or, or, or his work, sorry, um, uh, called Creation in English. So let me put that on. It's only about two minutes long, and I will then come back and continue with this discussion. But again, if you please uh, call in, 866-333-6279 if you wish, uh, during this short musical break. And with that, let's see if I can get the technology to work. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Thank you. 
Okay, well, I'm back. I just wanted to do that for fun and also to give you a, a chance to call in if you wished. But um, I don't see any calls, so I will, I will continue. So, um, the uh, problems... Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm going to run out of time before I can say everything I want on the show. So, I think I will just skip, so to speak, to the... Um, well, the problems with the theory of evolution on scientific grounds, by the way, I'm not challenging it on theological grounds. Uh, the problems on with sci on scientific grounds, and the uh, problems with what purport to be evidence, the ways in which uh, its claims to have evidence, in fact, is not evidence. So, okay, first of all, the the basic premise is that you've had these random mutations, generation after generation. And each time there's one of these random genera uh, mutations, it's an advantage to that particular individual in that population. And therefore, that mutation takes over the gene pool and waits for the next uh, random mutation. Now, this means two things. One is that each step forward has to be a tiny, tiny, tiny step because it has to be uh, produced by a, a single or very small number of mutations just because of the um, well, anyway, there's a worse problem than that, but that's a problem that even Darwin had, uh, acknowledged. As a matter of fact, Darwin said, I hope I have the quote here, he said, quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down because each modification has to be very small since it just happened randomly. But at the same time, each modification has to be a significant advantage because if it's not a significant advantage, it's not going to take over the gene pool. So um, it's the, when the next mutation comes along, it won't be on top of that first mutation. It'll have to start over with whatever that animal was like before that first mutation, which just essentially died out. So... Not only does each modification have to be very small, but each modification in itself has to be an advantage. Now, this is a fatal flaw in the theory of evolution because there is there are any number of aspects to life, let's say, which cannot uh, be produced 
through a series of small successive modifications, each of which is an advantage. Um, I mean, this, everywhere you look, you see examples. Take the transition from a reptile to a bird, which is claimed by evolutionary theory. The problem with that is you have to get from a reptile to a bird through successive small modifications, each of which is an advantage. Now, being a bird is not an advantage until you can, unless you can fly. Okay, If you can't fly, you're better off <laughs> being a reptile. Being a reptile with stubby little wings, which can't get you off the ground, that's going to be a disadvantage. The other things are going to catch you to eat you better than if you didn't have those stubby little wings. If you're a reptile and all of a sudden you sprout feathers, but you don't have the arm muscles to flap hard enough to get into the air, that's not going to be an advantage. Um, even feathers, by the way, I mean, you could have wings, but if you have solid bones, birds have hollow bones, they have to be very light to be able to fly. You know, if you don't also have hollow bones, the wings aren't going to do you any good, even if they're good as wings. As a matter of fact, the entire metabolism of a bird is different because liquid is very heavy, and therefore they have much less liquid uh, in their bodies than you know, another creature would. All of these things have to be, have taken place if the thing is going to fly. And if it's not going to fly, none of those little, little mutations are going to be any advantage until it's able to fly. You have that with flight. You have that with the eye. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to have a mutation which gives you a cornea on top of your forehead if you don't also have an eyeball and an iris and an optic nerve and a hypothalamus to process the visual information coming in and so forth. You need a tremendous amount of machinery before that, you know, before the little pieces of an eye are going to do you any good at all, one by one. Um, a classic example is blood clotting, which is quite an interesting example because there are dozens and dozens of chemical reactions which has to take place blood to clot. Now, if you have a, a warm-blooded mammal, which doesn't have an ability for its blood to clot, it's dead. I mean, it's dead on, not on day one, but, you know, it's hemophilia. The first time it gets a scratch, it, it bleeds to death. So you need a mechanism for blood clotting, but the mechanism for blood clotting is tremendously complex. But, hey, wait, that's not enough. You need a mechanism to stop the blood from clotting also. Because if you just have the mechanism to start the blood clotting and no mechanism to stop it from clotting, you know, you get a scratch on your finger. Great. The scratch, the blood clots. Oops. But then the rest of the blood in the fling finger clots. And then up the arm it clots. And then through the whole body it clots. And pretty soon you're dead because all of your blood has turned into, you know, glutinous material. You need all of this stuff to work before any of it does you any good. And therefore, this, this problem is called irreducible complexity. Um, evolution or uh, evolutionary biologists have no satisfactory resolution of this problem. But wait, there's an even bigger problem. I feel like, you know, one of those... Um, advertisers, you know, but wait, order today and we'll throw in free shipping. There's an even bigger problem, 
which is that um, as organisms develop from this single-celled amoeba or whatever it was to you know birds and giraffes and people and everything else, the complexity increases, right? We're a lot more complicated than a bacterium. We're millions of times more complicated than a bacterium. The simplest bacterium has, I think it's 525 genes. How many millions of genes do we have? There's a tremendous increase in complexity, needless to say. And um, one way of thinking about that in increase in complexity is the increase in information. Um, that example of how many genes is an example of that. I mean, we have millions of genes. That's a lot more information than there is in that 500 gene microbe. I'm going to go back to that 500 gene microbe soon. Where does that original, where does that additional information come from? Because a mutation, uh, by definition, either reorders pre-existing information. In other words, you know, a chromosome breaks and a gene ends up in a different place on the chromosome than it was originally, or it's a diminishment of information because a, a genetic information is destroyed. How do you get an increase in information, which of course you need if you're going to get from that amoeba to us? So I have another short clip. This is going to be a rather mysterious little clip to play. This is probably the world's foremost evolutionary biologist. He may have died recently, but he certainly was, you know, from for the late 20th century and the early 21st century. His name is Richard Dawkins. And the interviewer asks him, can you think of a single example of a mutation which increases information? Remember, we have to explain the entire increase in information from that single-celled amoeba to us through mutations increasing information. Now, and this uh, number one in the world, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, is simply asked the question, can you think of a single example of a mutation increasing information at all? You won't hear his answer. You will hear an awkward 20 seconds or so of silence. If you could see the video, you would see him looking up at the ceiling and looking down at the ground and, and making a big show of trying to think of something. And then you'll hear his words. They're hard to make out at the end where he says after about 20 seconds, uh, could you please just stop? Uh, or um, I have it written down exactly. You'll be able to hear it. But basically, could you stop the tape now? So let me play that short clip. Um, Hmm. Uh, excuse me. I think I have have failed um, at my technology. Let me try once again. Yes, let me try once again. Play that short clip. Can you give an example of a genetic mutation or, or, or an evolutionary process which ha can be seen to increase the information in the genome? So you heard that. I think he says, can you just stop that right now at the end? Um, it's a little hard to make out. I 
uh, let me play that little bit, repeat it a couple of times, and you can try to see if you can figure out exactly what he says. Can you just stop one? Can you just stop one? Can you just stop one? I think he says, "Can you just stop that right now?" He has no answer to the most fundamental. I mean, the entire premise of evolution is dependent on uh, the entire increase in information coming from those mutations, but. There are lots of mutations that have been observed, but not one of them increases information at all. They're all either information neutral or degradation of information, as Richard Dawkins just um, inadvertently, so to speak, or unwillingly admitted. So um, that is a huge uh, inadequacy, let's say, in the theory of evolution on scientific grounds. In other words, I'm not pulling, putting God in this equation. I'm just saying it purports to explain what we see without God. It can't explain the origin, and it can't explain the increase in complexity. It's not, there's not much left for it to explain. Now, um, the, the, what is pointed to by people who believe in evolution, who support evolution, that they claim is evidence, Basically, there are just two things they point to. The first is variation within a species. They say things like, look at all the different breeds of dogs. Look at the difference between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. Um, you can get, by selective breeding, you can get genetic differences. And if they got big enough, you would just get new species out of that. Now, there are two problems with that. One is, there has never been any evidence of basically there has been no variation outside of the species there's been no variation over the generations that has ever created an individual that's been observed that is no longer in its parent species that's number one the examples that darwin came up with for instance darwin's finches they're named after him you know they're finches finches with long beaks they're finches with short beaks because the islands that they lived on, some of them, the best food was behind the bark of a tree, so they needed a long beak to, you know, or rather, they needed a strong beak to break through the bark. Others, maybe the best food was in the mud, so they needed a long beak to get into the mud. So variations within the population, you know, they're always longer and shorter of everything within a population, eventually accumulated to where you got long-beaked finches and short-beaked finches, but they were all still finches. Um, we could do that, you know. We could uh, kill everyone under six feet tall, um, and then the next generation is going to be a lot taller, aren't they? And then we kill everyone under six foot two, and the next generation is even taller. This is this is selective breeding through variations within a kind, within a species. It's not speciation. It's not creating a new species. So uh, evolutionists are very eager to point to these um, variations within a species and claim that if you, you know, basically that that's the mechanism through which all of the divergence of species came. But they don't have anything to point to to give evidence of that. And in fact, Darwin himself predicted in The Origin of Species that we would find missing links. We would find the intermediate forms. You know, we would find the, um, you know, half reptile, half bird in the fossil record. It's never found. I mean, the intermediate forms are never found. 
um, sometimes claims are made that they're found. There was a famous case uh, just a few years ago. In fact, it was called the Archaeoraptor, which was supposedly the uh, intermediate form between a reptile and a bird. And it got uh, heavily tested by National Geographic. It, it got the full, you know, imprimatur, authenticity, you know, proof of authenticity from National Geographic. It turned out to be a fake. It turned out to be a scam that somebody had created, basically combined fossils of different animals and made it look like it was a fossil that everyone was looking for. There are lots of cases of missing links that were fraudulent. There are also missing links which are basically an artist's conception from a tiny amount of information in the fossil, and they just conclude that this is what the animal must have looked like and must have been the missing link. There is no fossil evidence for missing links. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'll get to the last fraudulent proof claimed by evolutionists, which is the most pernicious, is the most recent, you see it all the time, and the claim is that now we have absolute positive scientific microbiology DNA evidence for common descent, that all of the creatures on Earth in all of the various, basically every form of life on Earth, animal, every form of animal and vegetable, descended from a common ancestor, from one original organism. The proof of this, they claim, is the similarity in DNA between all living things. That, in fact, the, the proteins used by the DNA are extremely similar, and the DNA sequences are often even reused. They are, they're found in different animals. Therefore, this is considered proof, positive, that there was a common ancestor, because why would we have a DNA sequence, let's say, that pigs also have, unless that DNA sequence originally evolved in a common ancestor of both pigs, today's pigs, and today's humans. And it remained in today's pigs, and it remained in today's humans, and it's proof that we had a common ancestor way back when. This is given as absolute scientific proof. However, let me point out the logical fallacy here, which is, yes, it is kind of um, proof that it's not a coincidence that we have the same gene sequence, let's say, as pigs have for some particular function, I'll say for digestion or something. I don't know what it was for. But there's another alternative explanation, which is, let's say you're God and you create this great variety of life. You're not going to come up with a different fundamental system for every animal you create. Of course, you're going to use common elements. You're going to share design elements across animals, across different forms of life. You know, if I'm Honda Motors and I build a lawnmower, I will use a four-cycle engine. It's a very good design for lawnmowers. If I build a, a hedge clipper, a gasoline hedge clipper, maybe I'll use a gasoline motor for that using the same four-cycle design. And now I want to build a race car. I'm going to use a four-cycle engine for the race car. Because I'm an intelligent designer, of course I'm not going to start with a blank sheet of paper every time I design something different. Of course I'm going to use common designs. So this the fact of commonality in DNA structure between animals is just as plausibly evidence of intelligent design 
as it is evidence of a common ancestor and evolution. I hope I made that clear. It's really, really, really important. The only scientific basis for believing in the theory of evolution is basically if you want to start with the premise that God doesn't exist, then the theory of evolution is as good as you can get. It is inadequate, it's full of holes, it's self-contradictory, it has no explanation whatsoever for the origin of life, it has no explanation for the increase in complexity or information, but it's the only game in town. If you accept that God exists, why on earth would you bother with this unproven, illogical, contradictory theory of evolution? So that is my my rant against theistic evolution. Not that it's impermissible from the perspective of Catholic dogma to believe in the theory of evolution, but why would you want to? Because there is no scientific basis to support the theory of evolution if you accept the premise that God exists. Then everything that they claim is proof for evolution is simply proof for intelligent design, essentially. It's equally validly proof for intelligent design. So I've run out of time in the show. If you've still listened through to the end, I want to thank you for listening. And I certainly want to invite you to join me again um, next week on um, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I'll try to have more to do about Judaism next week when, when I do that. And in going out, we usually go out with a little bit of music. So with the studio's forbearance, I will um, put up the Haydn's creation for a few seconds and, and that'll probably fade out to the um, inter-show break. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, me, Roy Showman. Please join us again next week, same place, same time. Bye for now. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Tempestuous rage. Like chaff by the winds, impaled all the clouds. My son and fire, the sky is in Hey.